Hallelujah. Father, we confess with our hearts, reminded by this song, that the price of Calvary purchased our gathering, our assembly, our reason to be here worshiping and fellowshipping in this place, even this morning. It is the precious blood of Jesus that alone had the power to redeem us, souls once lost, dead in our trespasses and sins, hell-bent in the justice and judgments of a holy God. But there was a day when the Spirit awakened our hearts, those believers who confess faith in Christ alone in this room, where we who are dead in our trespasses received a resurrection of, of the soul, and we are awakened to regeneration and newness of life, a new creature, the old man stuck and gone and lost and dead in his trespasses and sins is gone and the new man has arisen. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit now marks those who are in Christ, even in the hearing of this word today. We celebrate these truths and we thank you, Lord, for their reality. Now as we turn to your Holy Scriptures, which record the glorious proclamation, prophecy, and prefigurings of old all the way to their fulfillment in Christ, I pray that our hearts would sing with new understanding and our lips would be fitted with the message of the gospel and our hearts would be encouraged to be faithful and even more faithful still to follow this word and this calling in Christ, to be obedient to the cause of the Great Commission and to do so knowing that you and you alone have given us this great privilege and your Holy Spirit attending our way gives us the ability to walk in a manner worthy of our call. I pray that you had used the means of this service proclamation of your truth to equip your church and that she would stand in the day of trouble and do so boldly proclaiming Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. This morning, I'm just rejoicing for the glorious opportunity we have as the saints to gather and to open up His Scripture together and to bow as we do so before the authority of the revealed Word of our Lord. To do this today, we turn to Genesis 32, continuing to chronicle the events in Jacob's life as Moses has recorded them for us. And so turn there with me as you're able, Genesis 32, 1-12 through 12 this morning. In a moment, we'll stand for the reading of the Word of God. The title of this morning's message is Two Camps, which, by the way, is the meaning of the name that Jacob gives to this place, where once again he has an angelic revelation, Two Camps. The aim of this morning's message is to proclaim the promise and repentance message of the Jacob Covenant. That is, the continuing relationship and that which is secured by way of God's promises, not just to Jacob, but those that continue in the Messianic line that were made to Abraham, his father Isaac, and now third generation, Jacob, in the patriarchal lineage of the Messiah. Would you stand with me as you're able and out of reverence for the reading of God's word today and consider in your hearing this encounter in Genesis 32, verses 1 through 12. Hear now the holy word of God. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of the place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants, 
I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He, did divide, he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Verse 9, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with, you, for with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do, good, do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Two camps. Jacob, in his exodus, in the story of leaving, as we recall, Padanaram unto Canaan, continues. And this exodus is continuing, escorted by heavenly hosts. Verses 1 and 2 though brief by word count, are perhaps the most profound in our text today. In studying and family worship and anticipating this message, I asked my family, what is the most surprising element of these, of the beginning of this chapter to you? I'll tell you what the most surprising element to me is, the fact that once again Jacob is on his way and visited by angels. Indeed, he sees what he describes as God's camp and names that place for this encounter, Mahanaim, which means two camps. So Jacob's exodus to Canaan, his return to the land of his forefathers after 20 years of exile continues apace, accompanied by this encampment of the angels of the Lord. Indeed, heavenly armies, heavenly hosts. This chapter in the patriarch, Jacob's experience continues to feature redemptive or salvation patterns, reinforcing the gospel through the life and calling of the covenant son. Major theme throughout the story of the patriarchs, and yes, and Jacob's account as well. And to set the stage for our uh, situation here in this text, the backstory of conflict, struggle, animosity, uh, you know, kind of uh, anger, and fighting between the brothers, Jacob and Esau, sets the stage for these moments in Jacob's life. It's been some time since he has interacted with his brother, two decades, but it's fresh on his mind the, the uh, animosity between him and Esau, for sure. Recalling this, Genesis 25, 22 through 23, recorded Jacob and Esau's first fight. Kid, do you, kids, do you re- know when Jacob and Esau first fought? Does anyone know? Yeah, Theo. Um, that is correct. Very good. Quick answer, too. When they were in the womb. Have you ever had such a horrible relationship with your sibling that your fighting goes all the way back to in your mother's womb? You see, Jacob and Esau were obviously twins, and the strife between the two went all the way back to before they were even born. This mark of contention between the two was very significant. I venture to say that no two brothers in all of history had quite the experience of these two with anger and animosity one towards another. These twins, while still in the room, were fighting 
inside of Rebekah. Furthermore, Genesis 25, 29 through 34, just a reminder of this backstory, records the birthright negotiations. You guys recall this, Jacob tricked his older brother to sell him his firstborn privileges. And kids, remind us what uh, Esau traded his birthright for. You guys remember? Lentil soup. Very good. You guys are correct. And so obviously, for this menial price, exploiting you know, the exhaustion of his brother, that didn't sit very well with Esau either. He felt tricked and slighted by his brother, and the contention builds. So we have them fighting in the womb. We have this strife over negotiations for birthright. And then later, the fraternal or intra-brother strife escalates even further as Jacob steals the blessing. You guys remember this? By pretending to be Esau. So Jacob impersonates Esau, wears those skins and lies to his father. His father, being blind, is eventually convinced, you know, against his better judgment that this is his favorite son. And in this way, Jacob steals the blessing, adding insult to injury. So all the way from the womb to this point, this contention, this fight has been building between Jacob and Esau. Of course, this final last straw in Genesis 27 results in Esau's anger rising to a murderous boil. In 27:41, it records that uh, Jacob or Esau was ready to kill his brother. And this compelled Jacob to flee into exile, to run away. In Genesis 28:5, we find him seeking refuge, heading towards Padan Aram in the care of his, uh, of his uncle, running from his brother to the house of Laban. Now, in our text, with this backdrop, we're approaching a reunion between Jacob and his long-lost brother. But 20 years ago, this is the note that they parted on. One brother wanting to kill the other and having what he felt as every good reason to do so. And this was freaking Jacob out. However, as he's approaching this, this reuniting with his long-lost brother, Jacob is reassured once again by the means of God's revelation that he has experienced through the course of his life. God tells him in a heavenly vision with angels that he is with him. God furthermore consoles him by covenant promises. We find this testified to in Jacob's prayer. And he names the location to commemorate God's favor. Thus, Mahanaim uh, joins Galid Mizpah, where that treaty was made with Laban, the oppressor, in the prior chapter 31, 48 through 49, and Bethel, chapter 28, 17, and 19 and 22, where the heaven staircase touched ground with descending angels. So we see these moments in Jacob's life where God intervenes and gives him consolation. He names those places for that testimony of God's faithfulness. He has done so at Bethel, he's done so at Galid, and now he does so here at Mahanaim, or Mahanaim, where uh, God uh, once again reassures him that he is with him. So the legacy of Jacob's testimony as a patriarchal heir of promise continues. God is preserving his covenant son. Mahanaim literally means two camps. And this motif or theme shapes our text today. So two camps. Three ways that we could view this in our text. There's the camp of Jacob and the Lord's camp. This is what he sees in verses 1 and responds in verse 2. The Lord's camp and Jacob's camp. But then there's also the camp of Jacob and the camp of Esau. And this is a real nerve-wracking element. What's going to happen when those two camps meet? And then within Jacob's camp, there ends up being a division as well. Two camps, a strategic calculation, 
a precaution, preparing to meet his brother. He divides into two camps. If one is attacked, perhaps the other can escape. So Jacob rightly names or appropriately names this place, therefore, two camps, Mahanaim. Jacob's fear, we hasten to add, though understandable, if you put yourself in his shoes, was unnecessary. Why was his fear unnecessary? We sang again this morning that appropriate song. You know, fear uh, should not be entertained among believers. We had themes in our own worship along these lines. Why? Because God has spoken and assured us by, with more reasons to have confidence than the, the, uh, than the challenges that we face, that he will keep us on the way. Similarly, Jacob's fear, though understandable, was unnecessary. One com- commentator insightfully summarized the situation this way, quote, As Bethel was the house of God and the gate of heaven, uh, Mahanaim, or Mahanaim was God's camp on earth. As, Be- as Bethel proved the house of God, and the gate of heaven, Genesis 28, 17, Mahanaim, was God's camp on earth. Genesis 32 teaches us that there is no safer place than God's camp on earth. Does God's camp on earth accompany you? If it does, you have every reason for confidence on your own journey. Jacob's Exodus reveals to us the following, and just three basic categories or main points for our message today. Number one, God's camp. Number two, Jacob's camp. And number three, Jacob's prayer. That's what we'll consider in this message today. God's camp, Jacob's camp, and Jacob's prayer. Verses 1 through 12. First of all, God's camp. Again, verses 1 and 2. Jacob went on his way. So this, of course, after he has come to terms with Laban. They parted ways peacefully. Something of a covenant has been established. And so there's this reassurance that God has protected him from being you know, gathered up by his one-time oppressor Laban and put back into effectively indentured servitude. Jacob, I'm sorry, Laban has arisen. He has kissed his grandchildren and his daughters blessed them. He's departed and returned home. 31 verse 55. And then our chapter opens. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. That is just a huge flash in the text right there. Again, the way the Bible is recorded, sometimes you have to read slowly and consider those surprising and amazing revelations. Sometimes that flash of brilliance is just a sentence long, but it deserves careful consideration. And as you carefully consider that when Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him, a few things you might notice are the following. There are only two references, the scholars tell us, to this term, angels of God, in the Old Testament. The one is in Genesis 28, where in a dream, Jacob sees the angels of God ascending and descending on that stairway in Bethel. And the other is right here, where Jacob witnesses the angels of God encamped, as it were, as a host and an army, an assembly, accompanying him on the way to return to the promised land. What does this tell us? Well, the angelic visitations in Jacob's experience they signal, they point to covenant milestones. In other words, we've mentioned this even in the life and the ministry of Jesus. When angels appear, you can usually bet that something significant is going on. Angels appear when Jacob enters into exile, and angels appear when Jacob is leaving or embracing his exodus back to Canaan land. 
And you can see why this is important, because this will be a recurring theme. It's a prophetic path that his life is taking. There will be, in other words, another exile and another exodus. Thus, these angels are signaling milestones of covenant significance. Just to remind you, in Genesis 28, again, we've referenced this so many times, but it deserves repeating. Verse 12, he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, who? The angels of God, ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord, Yahweh, stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give you. God's camp and the presence of these angels, the hosts of heaven, signal covenant milestones. Angelic visitations, if you will, bookend Jacob's experience in Paddan Aram. Those 20 years of exile, he enters with the assurance that he will be brought out, Exodus, later, uh, with this vision of angels ascending and descending on this stairway touching earth. Thus, at the beginning and then now at the end, these angels signally, signal these turning points in Jacob's life. These are the hosts of heaven appearing again. The first time revealing the way of safe passage unto glory. In other words, if, if believers, if the covenant son and all who are in the covenant have safe passage assured from earth to heaven via the bridge of God's redemption, then Jacob would certainly have safe passage assured across or through Paddan Aram, the place of exile, unto Exodus later back to the land of promise. The first time these angels revealed to him that the way of safe passage unto glory, bridging heaven and earth, guaranteed his safe passage. And now there is this reassuring guarantee of safe passage unto Canaan in spite of the challenging tests along the way. If God's armies are escorting you on your calling and path, do you think you will get from point A to point B? I one time I heard a story of somebody um, and whose wife went into labor suddenly. And so this fellow did what every good and responsible husband who doesn't feel equipped to deliver a baby would do, loads her into the car as fast as possible, and uses this occasion as an excuse to break every speed limit on the way. And in this particular story, I remember hearing, of course, a law enforcement officer, a policeman, pulled him over on the way, and this cop said, what's the hurry? Sir, my wife is in labor, her water's broke, she's about to have a baby. Get back in the car, step on it, he says, and I will give you an escort on the way. So now with flashing lights and sirens clearing the way before this car, there's an escort provided. And of course, you know what to do when you hear sirens and lights, right? You pull over. Thus, the pathway, the road was made straight for this husband to get to the hospital and to expedite that process, to get from point A and point B. Why? Because he had an authoritative escort. By that illustration, we can ask the question, how much greater, if you're escorted from exile unto promised land, is the entire encampment of the hosts and the armies of the Almighty? We've been praying for the church that has prepared to be faithful to the gospel and respond in an emergency on the border between Ukraine and Russia and in that general region. When you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, are caught in the crossfire of any kind of conflict, here it's interpersonal. It's the conflict between Jacob and Esau that freaked him out. But even now, in our world today, there's missiles flying overhead, there's bombs falling in cities, there's conflict 
And the people of God are there in the midst of great strife. Let us pray for the church there by the use of the Spirit's means, even through the Word of God, to open up the eyes of our brothers and sisters to see the hosts of heaven encamped in Ukraine right now, facilitating the work and ministry of Jesus Christ, even though they stand in harm's way. Pointing people to the only safe passage from here to glory. The church of Jesus cannot promise that a bomb won't destroy your house tomorrow. But we can sure promise that if it does, if you are in Christ, you'll be transformed instantly and ushered and escorted by the host and the armies of God into glory eternal. Into that perfect uh, reconciliation with God Almighty in heaven. This is a message that Jacob needed. And these covenant milestones pointed to this reassuring reality. Safe passage unto Canaan, in spite of challenges and tests along the way, was guaranteed. And he knew this because these angels, this escort of God's sovereign uh, military forces, was accompanying him on the way. These, furthermore, were Emmanuel reinforcements. What do we mean by this? We'll turn back with me again to Genesis 28 and let us remind ourselves of the Emmanuel principle or promise. Uh, kids, shout out, what does Emmanuel mean? Very good, God with us. There's an Emmanuel promise that we've identified in Genesis 28, and it's reiterated later. Verse 15, the Lord says directly in a dream to Jacob, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I will not leave you. I will bring you back. I will keep you. I will go with you. And what better way to illustrate this to Jacob than to open up his eyes for a moment to see the Emmanuel reinforcements. Jacob knew, in other words, that God was with him because his eyes saw the encampment, the hosts of glory, the armies of the living God with him on the way, escorting him and accompanying him back to Canaan. Now, Jacob was reminded of this prior to his journey. It's been some 20 years since that vision, but the Lord is faithful to remind his son. In chapter 31, what do we have in verse 3? These words. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Proof positive that the Lord is with Jacob? 32.1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. The encampment of the Lord was proof that these Emmanuel reinforcements were attending his way. Now turn with me for a quick parallel passage. I just can't resist this one. This is 2 Kings chapter 6. In 2 Kings chapter 6, a similar uh, circumstance, the people of God face a similar circumstance. There are enemies that surround them, and there is a prophet who is interceding, and he prays that his servant would be able to see something in uh, verse 8, we have an introduction and the setting of the sage here. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. You notice the parallels here? of an encampment of the king of Assyria mentioned. But the man of God, this would be Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? So you see what happened? The Holy Spirit tipped off the position of Israel's enemies through this prophet Elisha. And the enemy king is upset and he wants to know who the traitor is. 
But it just so happens the Lord has betrayed his position. When the servant of the man of God, this is Elisha's servant, rose early, verse 15, in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Much like Jacob, Elisha's servant was fearful and distressed because he sees the situation before him. This great army has amassed to starve them out and to destroy them. I'm sure they were superior in might, at least from man's calculation on the surface. But Elisha responds, verse 16, he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Is that true? In Jacob's case, Esau boasted 400 fighting men. Was it true that those who were with Jacob were greater than those who were with Esau? Well, just with the physical eyes, you'd say, no, that's certainly not the case. That was delusional. And so it was in this situation. But what Elisha prayed for was the vision similar to what Jacob experienced, that his eyes would be open beyond the physical to the realms of glory. Verse 17, then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, All these enemies, this is not the way, this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man of whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria, gets them all in the city, prays for their sight to be opened up. And then talk about a meal prepared in the presence of his enemies. They all share in this feast and send them home. Just an amazing circumstance with a number of parallels. What was happening? In this case, as it was in Jacob's circumstance, there was a window of glory opened for the eyes to see the manual reinforcements. Nevertheless, we can ask this question. It was the promise of God, I will be with you, any less true if Jacob couldn't see the camp of the Lord's host? Was the promise of Elisha, uh, the prophecy of Elisha, that God's people would be preserved and God's enemies routed any less true if the servant could not see the fiery chariots and horses? No is the answer. However, certainly their faith was greatly built by that a revelation. How can we see and be encouraged and have our faith built? Well, just as the Lord opened their eyes, we read their account in the authoritative, infallible Holy Word. When you spend time in the Scripture meditating on these stories, your spiritual eyes are open through your own Bible study to be reminded that the encampment of the Lord accompanies those who are in the covenant. Those who are in Jesus Christ and have a particular calling, even though they face daunting challenges and by the mere human calculation would appear outnumbered 10 to 1 or whatever it might be, nevertheless can be encouraged and strengthened when their spiritual eyes are open through the use, the means of the preaching and the reading and the meditating and the belief in the Holy Scriptures to see the encampment of the Lord. God's camp represents a covenant milestone for Jacob, but also Emmanuel reinforcements. And thirdly, this morning, I submit that the camp of the Lord, this encampment, signals a triumphal entry. In Psalm 24, we, re we uh, read together that the gates of a once closed area must lift at the authoritative voice of the Messiah. Who is the authoritative Messiah, if not the covenant son, the son of Jacob? Now, what I submit to you is a picture. It's a foreshadowing 
of the lifted gates of the promised land and purposes of the covenant son in this instance. In other words, this encampment of the hosts of heaven commanded the gates, if you will, of Canaan to lift up their heads. That the covenant son might faithfully, or that the covenant son might safely enter in. There is a return of Jacob, the covenant son, triumphantly into the land of Canaan, and the gates of that realm are lifted, and his enemies are subdued. And that announcement of the return of the covenant son is made, if you will, in the presence of these hosts. One reason why I say this is because we see connections across Scripture in a similar way. In Luke 2.13, the hosts of heaven announce the arrival of the covenant son. A passage I never get tired of preaching on. When all of heaven's armies sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men, that Christmas announcement of Jesus being born. And what is this gathering, this host, this assembly of the armies of heaven pronouncing? That the gates of humanity itself are lifted for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And yea, even the gates of Canaan are lifted for the entry of Jesus Christ through the womb of the Virgin Mary to come and accomplish as the covenant son what these shadows and types prefigured in the experience of Jacob. Thus the hosts of heaven, in the case of Jesus, signal a triumphal entry. And of course we read further in the gospel and in Matthew 21, in, in verse 9, we have the host of worshipers. And what do they do? They sing the praises of the true king. They sing the hosannas of the Messiah. And so the gates of Jerusalem are lifted for the entry of Jesus Christ. And in this case, the sacrifice of the covenant son. The hosts of heaven signal that the gates are lifted for the covenant son to come and accomplish his purposes. And Jacob, a sinner such as he was, nevertheless prefigured a covenant son to come. As we've said time and again, the son of Jacob would come and the heavenly hosts, the same armies that gathered on that day in Galeed and while uh, Jacob was heading out and on his path to the land of his forefathers, they assemble yet once again in the skies over Bethlehem and they signal the son of Jacob, the covenant son, the gates of humanity, the gates of Canaan are lifted that he may accomplish God's purposes in redemption. Thus, Jacob's exodus reveals these things, covenant milestones, Emmanuel reinforcements, and triumphal entry. And now let's take a look at Jacob's camp, major point number two. In verses three through eight, we have this record. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now, I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I, might find, that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He, did, he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. This is what's going on in Jacob's camp. We have some revelation here. Well, first of all, we note that there's a parallel between the angels or messengers of God 
sent from the Lord to Jacob, these angels of God that met him. And then Jacob sends out his own angels, if you will. Angels can be translated messengers. So even as God sends his messengers to him, now Jacob in turn sends messengers before him. Another way, or a further way to mark or to look at this parallel is, it's just as God sent his angels before him, messengers on his behalf to bring his word, Jacob then follows suit, doing the same. He reaches, in reaching out to his estranged brother, he sends these messengers to speak on his behalf, to go before him to bring that message. And later, this would be accompanied by gifts. In fact, lavish gifts from the covenant son. It's a little foreshadowing of a future message, perhaps. So Jacob not only sends messengers out, but he sends, if you count them up, 550 plus expensive animals, a small fortune on the way. And there's a message in this as well. There's a gift, if you will, from the covenant son extended for the purpose of reconciliation from the estranged brother. The gospel connections are rich there as well. So in Jacob's camp, it's marked by Jacob's angels or messengers, if you will. Just as God sent his, Jacob then follows suit and they go forth. And thus, Jacob's experience is marked by this. His camp is marked by that. Then we have Esau's camp by contrast. And we recall the ominous backdrop that we open this story with, the conflict that has marked this, these brothers' relationship thus far. And then we see implied in the text that Esau boasts a fighting force of 400 men. The messengers returned, these so, uh, so to speak angels, to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. So this creates quite a stir in Jacob's camp. Jacob's camp, really, it can't boast these kinds of numbers. 400 men implicitly refers to men who are able-bodied and can bear the sword. And do you remember Esau? He was the guy that was adept with weapons, could fend for himself in the wilderness, was a well-renowned hunter, and for these reasons, he was his father's favorite. Imagine a guy who can spend time in the wilderness and can be a predator of predators, if you will, and can fend for himself and has accuracy with the tools of war, training 400 guys. And then imagine 20 years ago, the last time you saw this guy, he wanted to kill you. In Jacob's mind, the last 20 years, Esau's probably been scheming and training these guys, bribing them and allowing them to eat of his, you know, uh, flocks and so forth, to join him as a mercenary force to hunt down his brother with, this ven with a vengeful cause. My name is Esau. You took my birthright. Prepare to die. We were watching uh, Princess Bride this week, and do you remember Indigo Montoya? He is motivated by revenge. And the way the human heart is wired, my name is Indigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. There's your once in a six month movie analogy that I'll sometimes give you. So, in this case, you see an illustration of the human heart. In the case of that, is a compelling character, though it is a comedy. One of the reasons why is that when a root of bitterness settles into the human heart, when some, especially when someone is not a believer, and they have good cause to hold that grudge against someone and requires forgiveness and grace to let it go, it is not natural for, for that to, to simply be released. For someone who's wired like Esau and has this legitimate grievance against him, 
and has made it his cause in life to kill his brother, Jacob has every reason to freak out, it would appear. If it were not for the hosts of heaven accompanying him and the promises that attended him along the way, you could see where he would absolutely cower in fear. And as it is, he is showing a lot of distress and anxiety, to be sure. So we call this conflict, this ominous report, 400 men implying a formidable uh, fighting force. What could Jacob boast? He has a lot of flocks. He has a lot of things to steal, but very little, presumably, arm strength or sword-bearing capabilities with those in his retinue. Very uh, little that he could do to protect himself. But, as we said before, the hosts of heaven were encamped beside him along the way. Esau was brought to reconciliation, we see, in this situation. And that, I submit, is a miracle of grace. Laban, and this is a contrast to our former story. So in other words, God protects Jacob in more than one way from his enemies. In chapter 31, Laban, as we said, was brought to heel by force. God appears to Laban in the middle of the night, freaks him out in a dream, and says, you better not say good or bad against Jacob. He is my covenant son, hands off. And Laban, much like Esau, has the power to do something about it, and he feels that Jacob is still indebted to him, that all of Jacob's holdings and his uh, servants, wives, and children belong to Laban. Laban backs off, lays off. And what does Laban do? He says, tell you what, I'm going to cut my losses. We're going to make a treaty. Laban is subdued by force. He is subdued by a greater power than Jacob. The armies of God, if you will, visit Jacob in the form of the representative in the night and say, don't you dare touch my covenant son. But now we see in this case that God subdues Esau by another way. And this is fascinating. Does God appear to Esau in the middle of the night and say, don't you dare touch my covenant son? No. Esau is subdued by lavish gifts of grace, if you will. Esau was brought to reconciliation with his brother by lavish gifts that were sent along the way from the covenant son, from that message going forth. And it's just amazing to see, though, in truth, Jacob was superior covenantally. He nevertheless took on a posture of condescension and humility. He referred to Esau as his Lord, and he gave to him from his store of riches. This is an entirely different Jacob that we see here. This is the repentance that is featured in his growing faith. And we know that this wasn't just a name only. You guys know what it's like, even in our culture, where it's like, hey, uh, why don't, you know, I'll give you, I'm going to pay you back for you picking up eggs for me from the store. No, 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 I insist it is a gift. Oh, okay, okay, but, you know, to be polite, you insist on repaying the gift. Well, Esau gives Jacob the opportunity. He says, I have enough, my brother, says 33, verse 9. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob says, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. So in this picture, I just suggest to you that the overflowing blessings of the covenant are the means that we see here represented to subdue uh, some of Jacob's enemies. Isn't it amazing how the grace of God 
can soften the hardest of hearts. God is doing this in the case of Esau, and he's doing it in the case of Jacob. Finally, in Jacob's camp, before all this happens, he separates into two camps. Verses 7 and 8, the strategic calculation. Jacob, greatly distressed and afraid, he divided the people who were with him, the flocks and herds and camels, into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one and attacks it, then the other can escape. Later in his prayer, he says, With only one, only my staff I crossed this Jordan, verse 10, and now I have become two camps. This is kind of a theme, a motif in the text. The fact that Jacob can divide his holdings and his servants and his family into two camps uh, is a testimony to God's blessing and prosperity on him. You know, what could Jacob divide into two camps when he was heading into Padanaram? No. All he had was himself and his staff. He couldn't do so. The fact that Jacob could divide into two camps represents two things. First of all, he's fearful. He's greatly distressed. So he employs the strategy. But secondly, he has prospered. And it's interesting, you see Jacob acknowledging both of these things in this action. This two-camp situation denotes two realities. Since God has blessed me and is overflowing covenant prosperity, I have the ability to separate into two groups. Having nothing but a staff, originally now he has sufficient holdings for two locations. Nevertheless, it is out of this fear that he, in his distress, in his anxiety, he employs this strategy. So that's what's going on in Jacob's camp. Now let's, thirdly, let's consider Jacob's prayer. Jacob's exodus reveals God's camp, and in summary, the absolute assurance that he, of safe passage. Secondly, Jacob's camp, temptation to doubt that that is true. And thirdly, Jacob's prayer, which I suggest is also a signal of a change in Jacob. Verse 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and the God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I cross this Jordan. Now I become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me. The mothers with the children but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, David, or I'm sorry, Jacob adds to his means to grow in confidence that vision of the attending angels, this covenant appeal, this prayer. And this prayer testifies to three things at least. Jacob's growing conviction, Jacob's contrition, this is genuine, genuine repentance, sorrow for sin. And thirdly, covenant appeal. Conviction, contrition, and covenant. Conviction. Some have identified this clearly in the text. It's the first recorded prayer of Jacob, at least as, you know, clear, as uh, obvious as this is. We've mentioned this before, back in the story of all the dysfunction with Jacob's wives and kids, and everything is just so upside down and out of order. And we saw the conspicuous absence of Jacob's prayer life. He doesn't cry out to the Lord the way the servant of Abraham did in seeking the bride. He doesn't, it doesn't strike him to uh, communicate with the Lord, it would appear, when he's going through all these myriad difficulties. But something is changing in Jacob's heart. These, this exodus has revealed a, contrition, a conviction, 
a growing faith in Jacob. Not only is this the first recorded prayer, so clearly it would appear in the text of Jacob, but it's also the first time he clearly addresses the Lord by his covenant name. There's a threefold address. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me. You see that? O God of my father Abraham, the multi-generational legacy of covenant is acknowledged in the introduction of this prayer. Who does Jacob make his appeal to? The one who with a surety and signs following and a miracle of birth and old age confirmed to his servant, Jacob's grandfather, the promise of salvation, covenant, and messianic hope. That's who he's praying to, the Yahweh, Yahweh of his grandfather, Abraham. Furthermore, of Isaac, who sovereignly led him to the covenant bride, his mother, Rebekah, Jacob's mom. And finally, the Lord who said to me. Here we find that Jacob is not only referencing a personal attachment to Yahweh, but he's also basing his prayer on the word of God. He opens up his prayer on the conviction that God has spoken to him. I encourage you, herein is a pattern of prayer. Base your appeal to the Lord on His Word. You could even make that as an introductory phrase in your own prayers. O Lord, who says to me, Lord, you have spoken to me. And then you could confess Scripture and open up your appeal to the Lord. So that's Jacob's conviction. He's, and secondly, contrition. We see it's almost, you know, following that manner of the Lord's Prayer. Acknowledging the holiness of the Lord and then the unworthiness You know, as Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us our debts. Verse 10, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. And then he says, for only with my staff I cross the Jordan, and now I have enough people to make two camps. In this confession, this contrition, this genuine repentance, this sorrow for sin, Jacob goes from what? A selfish cheater, I suggest, to a lavish giver. He goes from a guy who with his wits and means and own strength tries to secure his best possible future. He goes from that to confessing that none of his prosperity is due to his own hand and he doesn't deserve a single goat. He doesn't deserve a single servant or camel. This is all uh, due to the grace of God. The selfish cheater is being transformed. He's becoming a lavish giver. He sends a fortune of animals, 550, not even counting the calves of the camels to his brother and insists upon this fortune to be uh, passed along. Conviction, contrition, and finally covenant appeal. Praying according to the word of God, he says in his last phrases, verse 12, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for a multitude. Our prayers should often include this phrase, as I said before, you said the following, O Lord, and then we could pray, may it be according to your word. Father, you promised to never leave us or forsake us. So I confess, no matter how nervous, fearful, and distressed I feel under the present circumstances, I can trust that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you, my Lord, Savior, and ascended Messiah, ruling and reigning King of Kings, Jesus Christ, I need not be afraid. You have said that you will not leave me without a helper, 
but have granted to me, your servant, your son, the indwelling Holy Spirit to accompany me on the way. So though I battle fear and distress, nevertheless, your promise is stronger than my challenges, the test, and the trial that I face. You said, Jacob says, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Let us pray, saints, even today, that the fulfillment of this very promise that was made to Abraham of old, that you have as, would have as many children as the sands of the sea, would be true of us, that God would use our testimony to encourage our children to bow before the Lordship of Jesus, to confess their sins, to be counted among the sons of Abraham as God causes them to be born again, as they are regenerated, as they become Christians, as they are converted to the gospel. And may it be that, it may it be the case through any one of a number of opportunities that we have and the rest of the church have, according to the Great Commission, to spread the gospel wherever he might send us, that the Lord would be faithful to his promise to make the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the continuing legacy through the church as numerous as the sands in the sea and the dust and uh, the stars in the night sky. This is the appeal and the prayer according to the word of God that Jacob offers to the Lord. Jacob's fear was nevertheless present in spite of angelic visitation, but he was fighting his fear with good weapons at his disposal. Not only this uh, revelation of the encampment of the Lord, but also his confession in the surety of God's promises. Now let's close with just this question and one more application. You might ask yourself, in light of all these reassurances, why was Jacob still afraid? And why was he battling this distress? Well, Jacob kind of lets us in a window of the soul when he says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. He says, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. You know, last week, there's a good correlation between the message of Psalm 119, verses 41 through 48, and the message of Jacob in his life and its lessons for us. There's a correlation between the two. In Psalm 119 last week, we talked about how the psalmist gives uh, a framework for growing in credibility and confidence in facing those who taunt us, our enemies, and those who challenge our faith. And he gave a four-part uh, framework for doing so. First of all, covenant assurance. Secondly, means. Thirdly, guarantee. And fourthly, vows. There is a relationship between our vows, our moral strength, our conviction, our obedience to the Lord, and our confidence in Him. Another way to phrase it is, moral weakness breeds fear and distress, but repentance and obedience, faithfulness, breeds confidence. Moral weakness breeds fear and distress. I submit to you, this is in part why Jacob is afraid. It's because he has been a man of a low moral character, and his faith has certainly been weak. And in that frame of mind, he must repent, turn to the covenant, and grow. We see other times when Jacob is more confident. But that confidence comes in part. It's an investment of the soul in the assurance of the covenant and walking in faithfulness to the Lord. So we have a good application from Jacob's testimony and from the prescription of Psalm 119, 41 through 48. Because, and we need this because if you agree with me that the enemies against Christ and his church do seem formidable today and to seem to be growing in strength and power, 
then we have to have sufficient resources to oppose them. Is the word of God sufficient? Absolutely it is. So turn to the word of God. Turn like Jacob did with conviction that the promises of God, the indwelling spirit, and the encampment of the hosts of heaven accompanying you and God's calling in your life is stronger than any enemy, whether it be the missiles of Putin or the next temptation that faces you. You know, uh, tomorrow morning as you wake up and struggle with depression or anxiety or fear or concern or lust or strife or whatever might come up by way of attack from the devil. The power of God that accompanies us to follow him, if we would avail ourselves of this means, is sufficient. So let us turn our eyes and our ears, our attention and our meditation to the covenant of the Lord, the promises of the gospel. The reminder that those hosts of heaven signal that the gates of glory, or I'm sorry, the gates of Canaan opened for the covenant son, the perfect son of Jacob to come, Jesus Christ, and then to go through those gates unto Jerusalem and to die in our place. And by that covenant assurance of our sin atoned and his promise true of us, that the hosts of heaven join us and even his Holy Spirit accompanies us on the way, will give us strength for our calling even as we face hardships along the way. Saints, if you have not encountered this source of great confidence in the first place, um, you cannot relate to this message and you're no saint at all. You're an unbeliever. However, if you have come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, let the scriptures open up your eyes to the glory and the power that accompanies you on that journey unto your promised land. And in the hearing of this message, if you have not turned to Christ, you have no grounds of assurance and security. That next missile strike or that next enemy, that next car crash, that next tragedy, that ne next sickness unto death, God forbid, would send you straight to hell. But there is an assurance of safe passage unto the promised land of covenant glory in Jesus Christ. Turn to him, the son of Jacob, the son of David, the one who triumphantly entered through the gates of the land, of our sojourning, to secure for us safe passage. Let's close in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for the promises of the covenant and for the message we glean from your holy scriptures. I pray that you would use the proclamation of your word to strengthen us on the way. Lord, I pray that if we grow lax in any of these areas that we have spoken of today or others, that you would remind us of your word and that you would turn us, Lord, in conviction, contrition, and covenant appeal to the joy of our salvation, that we may be strengthened, Lord, by covenant, by means, by guarantee, and by our vows to walk in a manner worthy of the call and the footsteps prepared in advance for us to walk in, in obedience to our Lord, the Savior, and conqueror, Jesus Christ, trusting that he will guard and guide us on the way. In his name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.